welcome to Women in the Word. How is everybody? Good. Is everybody finished up with their groups? Good. Good. Well, I love the title of this series. It's probably one of my favorite titles we've ever done, Eavesdropping on Conversations with God. I just love it. I loved the illustration that Lynn gave two weeks ago about her eavesdropping experience, and I thought, hmm, when have I eavesdropped on conversations? Numerous times, and did you know I'm a professional eavesdropper? I learned how to eavesdrop in fourth grade. My best friend taught me. And um, she uh, had an older brother named Trent, and he was a teenager. And you know, when you're in fourth grade, teenagers are pretty cool, and you think they have a secret language, and they just turn into a different human that you want to be someday, and you want to find out all their secrets. And she said, Wendy, come over. I found a secret way to eavesdrop on Trent, her older brother. So, of course, I ran over to her house. And she, um, you might remember these old phones. If you're a lot younger than me, you may not. But you, um, they're corded phones, and you hold it in the middle, and there's a circular part at the top and a circular part at the bottom. <laughs> you remember that? And so you talked on the phone like that? Okay. She said, um, and you, if you know this, I'm, it's going to make me laugh, but um, if you unscrew the disc at the bottom, and you take the silver disc piece out, and then screw the cap back on, you can make as much noise as you want, and you can hear everything that's all the, the whole entire conversation. It was mind-blowing. We were so excited. So we got ready, and we were so excited he was going to call his girlfriend, and we couldn't wait. She'd get over here. She's going to call her. We're, we're going to listen to this conversation. So we're ready to go listening on two phones to hear this conversation, and this is what we heard. Hey, what's up? Nothing. What are you doing? Nothing. Got electric guitar. Cool. You want to hear me? I can play G on my electric guitar. Okay. Cool. You want to hear C? Sure. We thought, this is so boring. This is the most boring conversation ever. And we thought we never want to be teenagers if this is how they talk. We had way more fun uh, playing outside. We dropped the phone, and that was our experience. So it wasn't worth it. It was a total waste of time. The mystique of being a teen was gone. This week, tonight, we get to eavesdrop on a conversation of the only woman in this study. It's, her name is Hannah. And Han, it's a very personal, heartfelt conversation between Hannah and our God. God initiates communication with Hannah in the midst of some very painful circumstances. And in that conversation, God satisfies her heart and meets her needs. And he goes beyond meeting her needs and meets the needs of the entire nation of Israel. In your questions, you read about the painful circumstances Hannah was going through. But what does it have to do with the nation of Israel? 
We really can't understand the purpose of Hannah's inner prayer and the purpose of her pain without understanding the spiritual and political condition of Israel at the time of Hannah. Um, if you're a date person, you'll appreciate this. I like dates. Um, the time of this writing is 930 BC. It just kind of gives me a framework. Framework. God was always Israel's leader. He was always their God. And Israel was meant to be set apart to look like God, a light to other nations. And Israel, the time of Hannah, uh, was ruled by judges. Um, judges were um, God's voice. They were to rule and make decisions under the supreme th authority of the one true God who gave them the law. And in the book of Judges, you'll read that God's people had turned away from God repeatedly, time and time again, and he used judges to bring them back to him. This was a spiritually dark time in Israel. And the very last verse in Judges, which was written before Samuel, sums up the sp spiritual condition of Israel in one verse. Now, this verse is mentioned two times in Judges, and it ends on this verse. Look on your verse sheet, Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The end of Judges. Now, we should always hear sirens go off when you hear those words. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Um, that's a warning sign. Um, and that's not the end. And you might be thinking, well, isn't there a temple where everyone came to worship? Where we stood before the presence of God and where God dwelt? Yes, there was a temple. It was 15 miles north of Jerusalem in the city of Shiloh. And when you arrived, you were greeted by two temple priests named Hophni and Phinehas. And if their name sounds like trouble, it's because they were. They were big trouble. Their father's name was Eli. He was a good guy, but he was very old and aged in his years. And he left all the priestly duties to his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And he never disciplined his sons. They did not follow, they were not obedient to God, and Eli chose to ignore their disobedience. When all of Israel arrived at the temple to worship God, the people brought their peace offerings and their sacrifices, and the priests were to lay their hands on the animal and pray, and portions of the animal were offered to the Lord, and then the priests were to receive um, portions of the animal that God had designated for them, usually the breast and the shoulder. Excuse me, were given to the priests. Hophni and Phinehas were given the important tasks of following the law and making sure these were carried out according to God's plans. But when people arrived at the temple, they took whatever they wanted. So you brought your meat to the temple, and they're like, hmm, I'll take that, and I'll take that. What if you refused to give it to them? Then there you were accosted, and they would take your meat from you, um, and they, would they did what was right in their own eyes. So they did not respect the law um, in defiling the sacrifices. And also, there were temple women. They were holy women that came to serve at the temple. And guess what they did with those women? They were having sex with the temple women. They were bad guys. In the nation of Israel, the temple of God was to be a place of peace, led by godly leadership and obedience to, law, to the law, but the corruption in the priesthood added to the spiritual deterioration of Israel. 
God's going to intervene, as he always does, because he loves his people. And he would move Israel to a new era of leadership from judges to kings. The book of Samuels is about kings, and you may recognize many of the kings, King Saul, King David, King Solomon. We know all about their battles um, and their lives, but it doesn't begin with the birth of a king. Samuel is a true story, and it begins with the name of, with an ordinary woman named Hannah. God would use Hannah to usher in a new era of leadership in Israel, and God had Big plans for Hannah. She just didn't know it yet. Let's begin reading about Hannah's life and what's going on with her family in 1 Samuel 1, 1 and 2. There was a certain man of Ramathim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zoph, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had, no, had children, but Hannah had no children. Now we're introduced to Hannah's family. Elkanah, if you were here um, in the spring for the study of Genesis, you'll recognize this Ephraim. That's where uh, Joseph was from. And Elkanah was from Joseph's territory, but he was actually a descendant of, the Le- of Levi. Elkanah had two wives, and multiple wives were permitted by God, but it was not God's plan for men. As we have seen in previous studies, polygamy always meant there would be trouble at home. Elkanah loved Hannah, but she could not provide children. So he chose for himself a second wife named Peninnah, and she had many children. You also may have heard of the stories of um, just referring back to the spring of Rachel and Leah. Remember how that worked out? If you were here, we'll talk more about that in a little bit. It meant, and so begins the trouble. Let's begin in verse 3. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons, Eli, Hophni, Sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had oop, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. We're going through verse five. The law required the Israelite men to present themselves and appear before the Lord at the tabernacle three times a year. And this was most likely a trip to celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles, a festival celebrated to remind the Israelites of God's goodness and his his delivering his people from Egypt and how he's provided for them in the desert. Look on your verse sheet at Deuteronomy 16, 13 through 14. Celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days after you have gathered the produce of your threshing floor and your wine press. Be joyful at your feast. You, your sons and daughters, your men servants and your maidservants, and Levites, the aliens, the fatherless, and the widows who lived in your towns. This trip was a reminder to the Israelites of the character of God that he provided for their needs in a hot, dry desert with no food source. Remember, God rained manna 
He poured water from rocks so they would not go thirsty. He met their need, and this feast was a reminder they could trust him to meet their needs, meet their present needs. So Elkanah's family should have been filled with joy because of God's care for them, right? Joy is not the word I would use to describe Elkanah's family. First, Hannah's pain is evident because she's barren. To Hannah, life was meaningless without children. Children were to carry on the family's name, inherit the property, um, and the ability to bear children was extremely important then. I'm sure the day that Elkanah brought home Peninnah was a very hard day for Hannah. I'm sure Hannah's heart sank as Peninnah was a constant reminder of her inability to bear children. Let's read more about Hannah's family. Look at verse 6. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more worth to you than ten sons? Peninnah intensified the pain in Hannah's life by provoking her and just poking at her on this trip to the tabernacle, mocking her barrenness. Peninnah had severely damaged her relationship with Hannah and refers to her, it refers to her as a rival. With a heart full of jealousy, she couldn't help it but just spewed poisonous words onto Hannah to wound her, and she was successful. And what about Penn and his children? I can't help but think 15 miles is a long time to walk or ride a camel or a horse with your family all the way to the, all the, way to the ta- tabernacle. There's a lot of ears listening um, on this trip. This was a missed opportunity for Penina. A 15-mile journey to lead her children and focusing on the purpose of the journey to worship God. Penina's words cut deep in Hannah's pain, and she was successful. And Hannah ended up crying uncontrollably. This festival revolved around eating, and Hannah's pain was so severe she couldn't eat. This was not a one-time occurrence, but it says year after year after year, which means Hannah has been miserable and stuck in her sorrow for a very long time. And then there's Elkanah's clueless response. What about me? Am I not more important to you than ten sons? Isn't that such a guy question? Uh, But I really think this um, Elkanah's question was uh, another painful blow for Hannah. Hannah could have turned it around. She said, she could have asked, was I not more important than one son? His loaded question was a painful reminder that she was not enough because Elkanah chose another wife. Elkanah expressed his love for her. He did the best he could by giving her double portions, but not even Elkanah's great love for Hannah could bring relief from her pain. 
It seems Elkanah is troubled. I'm sure he's thinking on this trip, too, looking back with regret and thinking, why, why did I marry two wives on this trip? But I admire Elkanah um, for his steadfast obedience to the law and observing the feasts. If you arrived with your family at the temple year after year only to be accosted by two bullies and have some of your sacrifice taken away or who knows how they were treating you at the temple, it would be hard to want desire to appear there. It's almost like the bullies on the playground that take your lunch money and so you just kind of avoid that part of the playground. Despite their behavior, Elkanah demonstrated obedience to the Lord even when others did not. Elkanah's actions demonstrated to his family, and this is a great lesson for us to learn today and keep in mind today, that even when our leaders do not follow God, we do. This is not on your verse sheet, but it's, I know you're familiar with this verse. And Joshua 24:15b says, But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Elkanah's obedience also to bring, um, bring his family to worship in the presence of the Lord gave Hannah an opportunity to, be, to appear before the presence of God. With Hannah being barren, Peninnah picking on her, and Elkanah's insensitive questions, all this added to her pain. Now, did you notice that two times in this passage it says, the Lord had closed her womb? What? The Lord had closed her womb. Now, I want to say, for those of you who have ever struggled with infertility or have questions um, about pain, and this is hard for you to read, um, I want you to know this is Hannah's story. Her child was to be an unusual child with a purpose to lead Israel away from idol worship, point them to God, be the voice of God in a new era of kings. So yes, God did close her womb because the pain she would endure from her barrenness might move her and draw her close to God. Why does God allow us to experience painful circumstances in our life? I know you think about that because we all have experienced painful circumstances in our life. I heard it at praise time. I know I have. Um, When I think back to um, painful times in my life, I remember a day I went shopping with my sister, um, with my youngest daughter, Evie. I have three kids, and my youngest is 13 now. And um, if you've met her, she's just a joy. She has Down syndrome. And when she was about two years old, she was sitting in a, she was just a little baby. She was in the shopping cart in the front. And my sister was holding it and watching the shopping cart and parked it next to the restroom because there was hardly anybody there, parked it next to the restroom. And she said, I'll wait here while you go to the restroom. So I went to the restroom. And um, while I was in there, two ladies walked in. They didn't see me. They assumed my sister Becky was Evie's mom. And they were laughing and carrying on about the appearance of my baby and with negative, cruel, degrading comments. I've never heard anyone talk so vile and, um, ever in probably my life. It's okay because it's, it's okay. Hang on. Um, <laughs> um, 
The, um, they were ugly comments, and I stayed in the stall and listened to this jeering, and I thought, will they ever stop? Do they know that's my baby out there? They kept going and going and going, and I couldn't barely take it anymore. And I just sat there, and I couldn't decide if I was just going to break down crying in the stall or bust out with my karate moves and take these women down. Um, I was just waffling. I didn't want to choose the ladder for fear I'd be arrested in the store. But um, I just held it together. Um, I didn't even tell my sister. We uh, got home, and I came before God, and... I knew that he knew because he gave me her as a my baby, and I bawled my eyes out, and I poured out my fears. I poured out my heartache and frustrations in that, that conversation. And in that conversation with God, God brought this verse to my mind, and this is not on your rear seat either, but I can give them to you after the lecture. Um, it's my life verse for Evie. Psalm 139, 13 to 16, you've probably heard this too. For you created my inmost, beating, me, inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, and I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in that secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book. Before one of them came to be. Now, I don't know if um, God orchestrated that, where it says the Lord closed Hannah's womb. I don't know if those women were like puppets and he brought them in and used their mouth to um, bring pain in my life. Or, I don't know, they may have just been having a bad day and their ugliness just spewed out all over the bathroom. But it doesn't really matter. It really doesn't matter. I don't know, and I'll never know. And that's okay with me, because it's not my job to figure out the mind of God. But I do know this. I know I went to his word that day, and in his word, I learned that he had a purpose for her, and he made her perfectly. And even though I don't know that purpose, I still don't know what the purpose is for Evie. But I do know that I could write pages on the way that God has blessed my family and others through my daughter, Evie. I'm grateful for that bathroom experience. Truly grateful because it drove me to the arms of God and into a more intimate relationship with him. Why do we have pain in our lives? I don't know. God's, God, God knows, but I do know he wants a relationship with us, an intimate relationship with us. And God will go to great lengths to have an intimate relationship with us. And sometimes pain is the means he uses to pull us close. C.S. Lewis, Lewis once said this, God whispers to us in our pleasure, but he shouts to us in our pain. God's purpose for Hannah's pain was to move her to communicate with him. When the pain became too much to bear, to bear, Hannah ran to the arms of God, and that was God's plan. Let's look at verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. 
Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. With Eli watching, Hannah chooses to pray. She stands up and she finally surrenders her pain to God. This is where Hannah's pain had taken her into the arms of God, and it's in the presence of God that Hannah found a refuge, a safe place to pour out her heart. It was in his arms she wept bitterly. It was her safe place. Do you find refuge in God? We can be vulnerable with God. And pour out our hearts to him in prayer. And his word tells us he is our refuge. Look on your verse sheet at Psalm 18 too. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. In Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. There are numerous verses in the Bible about God being our refuge, and the definition of it of refuge is a shelter or protection from danger or trouble. In each verse, refuge is accompanied by the word strength or rock when describing God because we have really no ability on our own to handle pain in this world. We just don't. But when we run to God, he gives us his strength. That's God's design. That's his purpose. That's his plan. In the presence of God, Hannah also rises and recognizes another thing, that God is sovereign. God is sovereign, which means he holds ultimate power over everything as creator. He's the supreme ruler of the world. He also defines our purpose in this, in the, here on earth. He shapes our life in such a way that we will fulfill his purpose for his, his, those purposes for his ultimate glory. Look at Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 on your verse sheet. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. She calls God the Lord of hosts. This is a military term. And it's acknowledging as God as ruler who commands the armies and the hosts of heaven and the angels. And if you look at the verbs here in the, her prayer, she says, look, remember, give. Look at my affliction. Give me, um, give your servant a son. Remember your servant. She gets it. She knows that he's sovereign. He's all-powerful, the giver of life, and Hannah understands her position before God, her sovereign God because she refers to herself several, time, several times as your servant. 
Hannah knew God is good and prayed for his favor to be lavished on her, to have a son. And then in gratitude for her future son, Hannah makes a vow to surrender her only son to serve the Lord for the rest of this life, his life. Now, this is called a Nazarite vow, and it's the same vow that Samson's parents took for Samson. Do you remember Samson? He was very strong in judges, and he had long hair. Um, so um, Samuel, was, Samuel, her son, was um, prayed over, and um, she dedicated him with the Nazarite vow. And to understand it better, let's look at number 613 through 3, 8, and 5 on your verse sheet. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord. He shall be holy." He shall let the locks of, his, of hair of his head grow long. So there were three qualifications of a Nazarite according to Numbers. No haircuts. They had to wear their hair long. And there was a reason for this. It, you could identify a Nazarite by their long hair. When you saw someone with long hair, you would know that they were dedicated. They had dedicated their life fully to the Lord. They couldn't have wine. They couldn't go near a dead body because it was considered unclean. And these acts of discipline would set Hannah's son apart and would be acts of total devotion. Why would Hannah make this vow? And you might be thinking, the question might come up, maybe it hasn't crossed your mind, is it okay to bargain with God? Is that a bargain? Is she making a bargain with God? No. But have you ever done that? I used to do it all the time when I was young. If I do A, B, or C, then God, you do this. Or if you do this, I'll give you this. If God is sovereign and all we have is his, we really have nothing to bargain with. Again, this is Hannah's story. And God placed Hannah in unique circumstances to bring her to him to make this vow to bless a nation. Hannah's vow was not a bargain, but a response to God's sovereign grace in her life. I couldn't have said it better than this author, John White, who in his book, Daring to Draw Near, explains God's sovereignty and grace, and I'm going to read it to you. The real lesson is that you acknowledge that whatever God gives you, you owe to him alone. To pat yourself on the back or to boast about your prayer, prayer triumphs is offensive to God. Whatever he may give you in answer to your prayer, he gives by his sovereign grace. God has been good to you. He has given beyond anything you deserve. You are forever in his debt. Whew, that's hard. This is a perspective change that God reveals to us. Last weekend, I... Um, saw my sister, and I was telling her about this lesson, and um, she showed me a picture that she had received on her Facebook page, and um, she said, hey, I want to show you this, and it was a picture of a blank sheet of paper with a pen next to it. Maybe you've seen it, and the caption at the top says, here's a list of everything we're entitled to, <laughs> and there's nothing written on it. We don't deserve anything. And I often want to pick up a pen and scribble out all the things I think I'm entitled to on that sheet of paper. Perfect health. What is it for you? 
friends, to be understood. Maybe it's to understand pain and understand God. It's tempting to look at my list um, and then my eyes wander to someone else who has something that's on my list and I don't have it and I value that and I feel I'm entitled to it. And it's easy to get stuck in bitterness and envy and then I become a penina. Ugh, we don't want to become a penina. God has a different story for each of us with different blessings with different kinds of pain. We all experience different kinds of pain, um, but we can all approach it with the same heart of gratitude. When we grasp this truth like Hannah did, that everything is from God, we can have gratitude even in the midst of pain. Is it wrong to pray for those things? No. Hannah did. Hannah prayed for herself to have a child. And even if the answer was no, she could trust God that he would meet her needs. It's amazing to me that Hannah can go from um, such pain, crying, weeping, focused on what she does not have, to gratitude for all that has given her. Her perspective had changed in the presence of God, and ours will too when we draw close to him in prayer. This was God's purpose for Hannah. The pain he allowed her to endure pushed her to draw near to him, and she made a vow for her future son. Let's read, finish reading um, with verse 12. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her, her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Eli sees Hannah praying silently. Her lips are moving. He mistakenly calls her out as a drunken woman. Um, even Eli in the temple, a place where it should be commonplace to see people praying silently, does not recognize prayer. Um, He's an experienced priest. Um, this could be an example of the insensitivity of just not recognizing prayer, of a symbol of how dark Israel, at such a dark time in Israel that there may not have been a lot of praying people. But she does come back and say, I'm not drunk, I'm pouring out my soul. And her response obviously was refreshing to Eli as um, Hannah it's been years since Eli's probably seen people pray or maybe even months. And he, and he responds accordingly to, in, uh, to Hannah's prayer, saying, seeing that she was sincere and fully dependent on God to answer her, and we can see it's made clear to him when he says, go in peace. Peace is something Hannah hadn't experienced lately because she'd been in great anxiety and she knew that it was something she could not attain on her own, but peace was given to her by God. 
Knowing God is sovereign and good, she could trust him with her future, and now Hannah could move on because she had peace in her heart. She was stuck in sorrow, but her actions and outward expressions reflect peace. As we see, she went on her way. Her face was no longer sad. Um, Hannah committed her case to God and left it there left it there with him at the temple, and God took her pain. When we come before our living God, we will leave changed, and we have access to the same God that gave Hannah peace. Look at Isaiah 26.3 on your verse sheet. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Hannah's heart was at peace knowing she could trust God with their future. Because she could trust God with her future, Hannah knew God's plan was far greater than her own, even if she couldn't see it. God is a good God. His purpose for our life includes good things. His answer to our prayer might look different than what we have planned, but it's always, always better. Hannah kept her vow, and although most, uh, most Nazarite vows were temporary, Hannah committed Samuel to a lifetime of service to the Lord, which meant when he was weaned and he was just a young little, little guy, Hannah brought him to, to the temple to live with Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. That sounds fun. Um. But if you read ahead in Samuel, you'll find that they are not there long. Thank goodness Samuel doesn't know that. Um, God would not make him live with those bullies. In Samuel's new home in the temple, God would teach Samuel, and he learned to be still and listen to his voice just like his mother. Just as God initiated prayer with Hannah, he would initiate prayer with her son. When Samuel was just a little boy, he was lying in his bed at night, and we get to eavesdrop on his conversation. I love this, um, this uh, conversation with God and Eli. And God calls out in an audible voice, Samuel, Samuel. Three times he, said, he does this, he, and he runs to Eli saying, here I am, you called me. And Eli tells Samuel, go back to bed. It wasn't me. He does it two more times. And finally, Eli says, it's God calling you. Go lay down in your bed. And he tells him how to answer. Look on your verse sheet. 1 Samuel 3, 10 to 11. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And so begins the conversations between, with God between the new prophet of Israel as God's voice to King Saul and King David. He also tells Samuel about the punishment for Hophni and Phinehas, which must... Phineas, which must have brought great comfort to Samuel. The nation of Israel had moved from a period of judges where everyone did what was right in their own eyes to a monarchy of kings led by Samuel as God's voice to remind God's loved people to do what was right in the Lord's eyes. Samuel um, 
It's believed, and uh, by most commentaries, was the author of the first two chapter of, chapters of Samuel. And I love that he's writing about his mom. I can't think of a better Mother's Day present than to have your own child record um, about your relationship with God. He wrote about his prayer for mother about his, and his circumstances that brought about his birth. So what happened to Hannah? You know, she dropped off her son and she walks home and there's not a baby in her arms. Um, she doesn't return to Rama with a baby, but she's a new person. God has given her his peace and his joy. And there's another prayer of Hannah in chapter 2. And if you have, I'm not going to read all of it, but if you have time to read it, um, it's wonderful. It's Hannah's praise. Um, I'll just read the beginning in 1 Samuel 2, 1 to 2. My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Hannah rejoices in God's deliverance from her pain and Israel's deliverance from darkness. This praise is very similar to Mary's praise. You know, Mary had a praise in the New Testament when she was pregnant with, after hearing she was pregnant with Jesus, and she too rejoices in the Savior of Israel. Both praise God for their children, Samuel, who would bring deliverance from the dark days of Israel, and for Mary's son, Jesus, who would bring deliverance for all mankind from the darkness of our sins. And just so you know, Hannah didn't know this, but God blessed Hannah with three more sons and two daughters. Our God's a good God with a good purpose for our life. And sometimes he allows us to experience pain, to move us, to lean in on him. Because it's there we can experience the fullness of his character, his comfort, his joy, his peace, his strength, and his love. One of my very favorite hymns to listen to during dark times is Be Still My Soul. It reminds us to trust God even in the darkest times. I feel like it should have Hannah's name written right beside it, so I'm, I won't read the whole one, whole song. But if you're not familiar with it, go read this hymn. It's a beautiful hymn, so I'm just going to read the opening. Be still, my soul, the Lord is on your side. Bear patiently the, the cross of grief and pain. Leave to your God to order and provide. In every change, he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul, your best, your heavenly father, your heavenly friend, through thorny way, ways leads to a joyful end. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, I praise, you, praise and thank you that we have a place to go. We have a place to go to you um, to in our pain. Lord, in this life we'll have sorrow, but I'm so grateful we have arms to run to and we don't have to stay stuck in our sorrow. Help us to remember that you remember that in you our hearts are satisfied and we can trust your great purpose for our lives. In your name I pray. Amen.